Good, good. It's good to see everyone today. Before we get into the word this morning, I just want to give a little church family update. As most of you, if not all of you know, you know, Pastor Gino and Andrea are in a season of transition and they've been praying about and discerning what the Lord was leading them to do where they were supposed to go. And so they have, uh, Gino has accepted a new job and he will uh, be at a church in Chicago. So if you're feeling like you're super sad that you won't get to see him, I understand and empathize as he's one of my dearest friends, but maybe you can drive down to Chicago, which isn't too far and bother him every now and then. But uh, all that to say, uh, so they'll be there. Their last Sunday with us is uh, uh, November 6th. And so you've got this Sunday, three more Sundays, four Sundays total with them still with us. And so that's how long you've got to just hug the mess out of them and shower them with love. Make sure you take advantage of those opportunities to let them know how much you love and appreciate them, how much they mean to you. And of course, that last Sunday with them here on the 6th, we will bring them up and we'll all as a church family pray for them together uh, and bless them and, and pray that God leads and continues to guide and bless and use them for the kingdom of God and for God's purposes. Amen. Amen. This isn't something that's new in the day and age we live in. We see this in scripture. And in fact, we even see this in what we read in our uh, reading plan this last week. And so further beyond that, uh, just to let our church family know in case you're sitting there going, okay, that's good that that's the plan for them. What's the plan for our church? And we are in contract with the same company, Fruit Group, that we actually used to find and locate and hire Pastor Gino. We are using them again to uh, find the right person that God wants for this role. And so would you as a church family be diligent in prayer that the Lord would lead us and guide us to the right person? And uh, my prayer is in things like this is always, I mean, there's many things I pray, but I always bring it back to, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, make it clear to us what your plan is. And, uh, and as a church family, we can prepare now to say, Lord, whomever you reveal to be that person, whoever you appoint for that position, Lord, let's be that church that, that uh, when that person is appointed, that we cheer and celebrate and just shower them with love and make them never wonder if they're welcomed or loved and wanted in our church, that we would be a church that just overwhelms them with love, which is another thing that we see again in our reading plan from Thessalonians this week. Having said that, let's pray before we get into the word. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you, Lord, that we can in a moment's notice stop and uh, turn our minds to you, turn our hearts to you, pray to you. So Lord, right now, as we are about to open your word, I ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth, that you would teach us, that you would guide my words, and that this would be more than a motivational speech, but that it would be a proclamation of the truth of your word that penetrates hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit and brings about transformation. Lord, for the, the glory of your name and for the good of everyone listening. In Jesus' name, amen. What happens when we die? Ooh. <laughs> what happens when we die? What is the afterlife like? Is it reincarnation? Are we all going to turn into cows where we could continue contributing to the dairy culture of Wisconsin? Or is it non-existence that after we die, we just cease to be, we no longer exist? 
Is it something that's been called soul sleep, an idea that's very commonly coming from the passages we read in Thessalonians this week? Is it purgatory, where you go somewhere that if you weren't good enough, you have an opportunity to try and work a little harder to earn your way into heaven? These are questions that have burdened millions and billions of people throughout history. These are questions that everyone has wrestled with at one point or another in their life. And these are questions that many people wrestle with often and a lot. People have fear for lack of knowledge. These are things that that scientists and philosophers and preachers have studied in depth for ages to try and find the truth and to try and be able to give that truth to others. It's one of the greatest questions of all existence. And ultimately, every single one of us, every human being that gets of age, my daughters, four and five, have wondered what happens to us or to so-and-so when they die. And perhaps you've had events in your life, even recently, that have maybe forced you to think about this more than regular. Perhaps you've been looking at the landscape of the world and you have been seeing what's going on in the war in Ukraine and you've heard rumblings of nuclear war or you've heard rumblings of World War III and that's got you thinking, oh man, what if? And what's gonna happen? And what would happen to me if? Or could it be everything we experienced with the onset of COVID-19 No, we don't want to talk about that. It's like, we don't talk about COVID. (laughs) Coin that, token that. All right, trademark. And maybe that has been something that's forced people to think about death more and what happens. I know there are many people during the onset and the peak of COVID that started coming back to church, started wanting to, to restore a relationship with God. And... Perhaps it's been the death of a loved one that has made you think of this. Perhaps it's been a terminal diagnosis that can be scary and put it in your face. These are legitimate and valid concerns. Actually, I would say they are the most important concerns you could possibly have. What happens to you when your life on this earth ends is more important than whether or not the Packers have a chance. Thank God, right? I'm just saying, (laughs) because I'm starting to think not. (laughs) It's more important than whether or not the stock market is ruining your retirement. It's more important than who we vote for in a few weeks. It's more important than whether or not you get to live your dreams. More important than the career you choose. More important than who you marry. More important than where your kids go to school. More important than anything. There is nothing more important in your life than your eternal destiny. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important. Paul writes two letters to the church in Thessalonica because they were being tormented with grief over a lack of an answer to this very same question. They didn't know. The Thessalonians were wondering what happens when believers die and when is Jesus coming back? Today, we're going to see from Scripture that for the Christian, death is not to be feared and that the truth of the Word of God is comforting and that we have a future hope that significantly 
affects and steers the way we live today. We're in the year of the Bible. If you're new here, we welcome you. We hope that you enjoy your time with our church family today. And we've taken 2022 to do something we've called the year of the Bible, where we take January to December to go Genesis to Revelation, following the main story, the one story that is the Bible, a story about Jesus. Maybe someday I'm going to call one of you guys up here, one of our regulars, to give that spiel because I say it every week for all of our new people. But we have a reading plan that we read throughout the week. And then we come together on Sunday and we talk about what we read. And our reading plan this last week had us a couple of times in the book of Acts. And it had us in First and Second Thessalonians and a little bit of First Corinthians. And those parts in Acts are correlated to these letters that we, that we read. I want to give you two minutes of context for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It is modern day Thessaloniki. In Greece, and today it is the second largest city in all of Greece. It was a religious melting pot. You had the Greco Roman pantheon, meaning Zeus and company, with the way I would say it. You also had imperial cults, those who worshiped Caesar. You also had the Egyptian cults, those who worshiped Pharaoh. And also there was a sizable Jewish population there, although less than the others. And so it was a very religious melting pot. And all these religious backgrounds coupled with the fact that this is also Greece at the height of the development of philosophy and deep thought. And so all those things together created so many different views and opinions and perspectives on what the afterlife was or what happened, what it looked like. And so these people that Paul's writing to in Thessalonians, a church that he planted there, are wrestling with what's happening to the people in their church that died. Now, we read in Acts chapter 17 about Paul's missionary visit to Thessalonica. He went with Paul. It was Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and they were there for three weeks. Now, this is very uncommon for Paul's missionary journeys. Normally, he would go to a new city that hasn't heard the gospel, and if it was a new city, he would go and stay for months at a time. Maybe even a couple of times, he stayed for a couple of years. And so anytime he went to a place that had not heard the gospel yet, he would go and stay long enough to where he could teach them everything he felt they needed to know and to model the Christian life for them. The problem with the Thessalonians is that as Paul, Silas, and Timothy were there for three weeks, the local Jews began to get angry because they're saying, hey, these guys are coming in with this Christian faith. It's a perversion of the Jewish faith and we can't let that happen. So they began to stoke these riots and they pushed Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town. They were only there for three weeks and you see that in Acts 17. And so the persecution rises in the city. They're pushed out and they have to leave and they go continuing their missionary journey elsewhere. With it being cut short, there was a lot that was lacking in what they would have been taught. And so one time Paul sends Timothy there to check on them and Timothy comes back to Paul and says, hey, they've got some major concerns. They're really wondering about this and they're fearful about this. They don't know about this. Things that would have been answered had they been there the normal amount of time. After Paul and his posse, so to speak, left town, those who were opposed to Christianity 
began to ramp up persecution against Christianity. They're saying, in, the, in our city in Thessalonica, we want to squash this right away. So they ramp up persecution severely. They're suffering. The Christians in Thessalonica are suffering severe persecution uh, at the hands of those who are opposed to Christianity. And because of that, they start wrestling with their faith. They're wrestling with their faith, and they're also struggling with the death of some of their brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't know if it was just natural causation death. There's a good chance, though, that some of it was death through the persecution of Christians. And so as they're wrestling with this, they're also being mindful that, man, Paul told us Jesus is coming back soon. But we've got brothers and sisters who have died now. Did they miss the boat? Like now that they're dead, did they miss that Jesus is coming back? Are they just dead and non-existent and won't get to be resurrected with us, be raptured up with us? And they have these very valid and fearful concerns. And so they wanted to know what happens when we die, Christians, if we die before Jesus comes back. And they also wanted to know, hey, on that note, also, when's he coming back? You said he was coming back soon and, and our suffering here in Thessalonica is going on for a while and to be quite honest, we'd love it if he'd come back. So when is he coming back? So chapters one through three of 1 Thessalonians is Paul encouraging the church, strengthening them, telling them he misses them, how much he longs for them. He's encouraging them in their suffering and he's explaining why he hasn't been back yet. He's saying, we want to come back. We miss you. We long to be with you and teach you more, but we've been hindered so far and haven't been able to be there. So turn, if you haven't yet, turn to 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to pick up in the end of chapter 3, where he's already encouraged them. He's been bragging on their genuine love that they have for one another that he's heard about, their authentic faith in Christ that he's so proud of. He's taken time to encourage them in that. And now, he's going to address their questions, their concerns. But let's look here, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Notice he's saying this is our prayer. We really want to get back to you guys. And he says why right here so that we can supply what is lacking in your faith. Meaning, we recognize with how quickly we left, there's a lot that you're lacking. There's a lot of things you don't know yet. And that's why he's writing this letter. Continuing on, verse 11. Now may our God, he prays for them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that... He may establish you or establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. 
He's saying, listen, we want to get back to you so we can complete what's lacking in your faith, what you haven't been taught. We want to fill in those dots, fill in those blanks. But notice, he doesn't first, after the opening exhortation and encouragement and saying, we miss you and want to get back to you, he doesn't immediately answer the questions. The first thing he wants to do here in his prayer is call them again to holiness. He says, we're praying this and this for you, but ultimately we're praying that you can continue in holiness, blameless living before the Lord. Let's continue on in uh, chapter four, verses one, and we're gonna see this expounded. He says, verse one, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own business, <laughs> your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Verses one through 12 is Paul's call to holiness, not to live like the Gentiles. God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Now you might be thinking, okay, Stephen, <laughs> how many times a year, how many times this year are you going to talk about holiness and holy living. And I would propose a question back to you and say, have you ever noticed how much it's in there? Have you noticed, have you felt the quantity of calls to holiness from scripture? Front to back in the Bible, front to back, we are called by God as his people to be different. Over and over. This isn't just a New Testament concept. This is from cover to cover. And we want so badly to make Christianity look cool and show people how we're just like them. The only difference between you and me is that I know Jesus. Listen, that's a huge difference. Knowing Jesus and not knowing Jesus is a huge difference. You might be thinking, well, Stephen, Paul also said, I want to be all things to all men that I might win some. Amen. Yes, he did say that. But I can promise you what Paul did not mean is that we live in sinful or unholy ways to win some. 
He's saying, learn how to be like those who you are around in a way that you can connect with them, but not at the expense of your holiness and your purity. Because if that's what he meant, this wouldn't say it this much. We are called to be different, to look different. Hear me out. I am not saying we are better than. I am not saying look down the nose at. I am not saying treat them from self-righteousness and some, ooh, you, I'm different than you. No. That's where Ephesians, Paul wrote to them saying, hey, you were dead in your trespasses and sins too, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So anytime you start to have this, oh, I'm holy, I'm different. Listen, you're only different because of the grace and mercy of God. And because of the Holy Spirit indwelling you and transforming you. And so this call to holiness is not a call to snobbery down the nose at sinners. And a forgetfulness of the fact that we still wrestle and struggle for the rest of our lives. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it upon the perfect day. Meaning the day you die. Or the day that you're called to home with the Lord. And so God's still working in you. And because of that. We, we don't look at those who don't know the Lord in some snobby, you're gross, nasty sinner way. We are called to look upon them with love, with compassion, and an urgency to call them to the Lord. An urgency to share the gospel. But this idea that we can be just like the world and only part of our lives that looks different is our Sunday mornings. That concept is unbiblical. That concept is unchristian and unholy. We are to look different. Meaning there ought to be things in our lives that makes other people go, there's something different about you. You guys have heard me talk about the factory I used to work at part-time, third shift, lots of fun, lots of fun language to listen to, lots of interesting conversation to hear and be around to be a part of. And it only takes so long when you're in an environment where everyone talks a certain way for you to stick out as the person who doesn't talk that way. It only takes a certain amount of time before people start going, hang on, I ain't never heard the F-bomb out of his mouth. When all the rest of us, hang on, why is it that maybe when all of us have, our boss is not looking, we might do things get away with things, but they always work as if the boss is watching them. As believers, we are holy. We are to look different. We are called to look different. Notice what Paul said in verse five. He said, not like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is why we can't be just like the world and the only difference about us is that we know Jesus. Paul is pointing out to know Jesus, to know God, unlike the rest of the world, completely turns your world and life upside down. You cannot know the holy God and live as if you didn't. Let me say that again. If you know the holy God, you can't live as if you didn't. If the Holy Spirit of God comes in to dwell inside of you, you cannot live as if he doesn't. With, if your life, if your decisions, if your language, if your behavior grieves him, he's going to grieve you about it. 
He's going to convict you, not in condemnation, but in conviction, saying, hey, this is not okay. Come on. That's not what my father has for you. Come on. And one thing that I've said before, I'll say it one more time, holiness does not blend in. Holiness does not blend in. It stands out. It looks different. And in a world that is driven by the passions of the flesh, when you are driven by the Holy Spirit, your life will look do look different. You remember this from our reading plan? Thousands of years before this letter was written to the Thessalonians, God was telling Abraham and his family not to be like the Canaanites, the people of the land. You remember God was telling Moses and the Israelites not to be like Egypt and the people of the land? or as they were going into Canaan, not to be like them. Prophets for hundreds of years and thousands of years were telling the Israelites, don't be like those around you. You remember, remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who were choosing not to violate God's law and chose to be different than everyone else in Babylon. Jesus, John, Paul, Peter, Almost every New Testament author has some variation of a message of repenting from sin and the ways of the world and being different than the world. Why? Not like the Gentiles who don't know God. If you know God, your life will look different. And after Paul calls the Thessalonians, he says, I miss you, I long for you. Let's live holy, not like the Gentiles. We live as if we know God and that has impacted our lives. Then he shifts to answering their questions and their concerns. Let's go to chapter four, verse 13. He says this. But now I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Just look to your left real quick, to the right. If there's somebody asleep, say the Bible's talking about you right now. Just kidding, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about death. Gotcha. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve, or that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, notice that. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection of Christ is the anchor of the hope he's preaching. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I wish I had time to dive deep here. (laughs) I wish I could get into eschatology and end times and all of that. And and unfortunately, in our reading plan, we're limited on what we have time to talk about right here. I'm just going to trust the Lord's letting us cover what he wants us to cover right now. But what I want to cover here is, one, this passage is not meant to teach what is a common error today called soul sleep. Soul sleep is this concept that when we die... 
we go to sleep until the second coming of Christ. That it's like we're not conscious that our body's in the ground and we're asleep. And then when Jesus comes back, the, the dead in Christ right here, as it says, are resurrected and they're awakened to consciousness again. And that, this passage and a couple other in scripture are ones that make that seem like a viable doctrine or theology or concept. Although there are a lot of other uh, scriptures um, that, that nullify that concept. This is why we need Toda scriptura, meaning all of scripture. Because if you build doctrine off of just one passage, if there's one place you read something, absolutely. If this was the only place I read this, then I would be going, yeah, that's true. That's got to be what happens because of what Paul said right here. But when you look at all of scripture and let all of the Bible inform a view, then you harmonize different things to come together to conclude uh, a doctrine that you land on. So here's an example. If you want to look up a bunch of, virtues, bunch of verses as to why I don't believe or agree with the concept of soul sleep, get your phone out and get ready to take a picture of the screen because I, I don't have time to turn to all these. But if you could go ahead and put those up. Um, just a few verses that contribute as to why I don't believe we go to soul sleep, uh, soul sleep that when we die... Our soul goes on consciously aware that uh, Lazarus and the rich man who died, uh, there's an account of their exchange. Uh, Luke 23, uh, Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's death, he has a vision of heaven and he says, Lord, receive my spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 10 Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you can read the context of that entire passage. It's very clear. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 is where Paul is saying, guys, I would rather die so that I can go be with Christ, but it's better for you that I stay, so I'll go ahead and stay. If it was just to go take a big, a big, big nap, <laughs> I don't think he would have been saying that. Okay, Revelation 6, 9 through 11 is the account of the souls of martyrs crying out for the Lord's justice. Those are a few verses. Go look those up. Go read them. All of that to say, um, I, I believe what is more true, more accurate, is that as a believer, as a Christian, when you die, you go into what has commonly now theologically been called an intermediate state where your body's dead in the ground, but your soul, your spirit uh, is, is aware, awake, alert, and that you are with the Lord. Um, and so then beyond that, when what we're reading about here in Thessalonians, when Jesus returns and the dead rise, that is also when we will receive new bodies, we'll receive glorified bodies. Um, and, and, and I don't even have time to go through all of that right now. We might do just like a, a couple of months series next year on all this because I think it's going to take that to dig into it. All of that to say, I, I, I want to touch on these things for the same reason that Paul was. Because we have loved ones that pass. Guys, in our church this week, we have two families who lost loved ones in our church family this week. There's one man who lost his mother and a dear sister in our church who lost her sister, 38 years old. Please be praying for them. They're in grief. They're in sorrow. They're in pain. They're in mourning. I've been on the phone hearing these tears. Please be praying for them. But notice what Paul said. He said, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Meaning, 
Because of the truth of the word of God, the truth of what God has done and what he is yet to do, we don't have to grieve and sorrow as people who don't have hope because we have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. See, scriptures talk about death, the second coming of Christ, eternity, judgment, etc. Scriptures that talk about that, like these passages, are some of the healthiest passages for you to read on a regular basis. Scriptures that confront you and remind you of the fact that your life will end on this earth one day are good for you to be confronted with. Going to the funeral of a loved one, seeing an empty, dead body of someone you know is good for you because death is right there looking at you in the face, reminding you that you too will find that end one day. And it's important that we see that and we are reminded of that because if we don't, we forget and we start living our lives for ourselves, for the here and now, live for the moment. And I think that what's much better, what's healthier is to live in the moment for that day because we all will get there. We need those sobering reminders because without them, we will live for the moment, for today's fleeting pleasures, rather than for that day and for eternal pleasures. And although these things are very sobering, for the Christian, they are also very hope-giving. See, clear teaching about the Lord's return should result in comfort and encouragement rather than fear. And that's why Paul says at the end of that section, encourage one another with these words. So to the Thessalonians who are sitting here grieving the loss of their brothers and sisters in the church, he's saying encourage one another with the fact that, hey, they're going to be resurrected. They're not going to be abandoned. They didn't miss the boat. God saw their faith. And the truth is they're with the Lord right now and their bodies will be resurrected at the second coming. And of course, after Paul talks about the return of Christ where we'll all be caught up with him, they're now thinking about when? (laughs) When will Jesus come back? When is the return of the king? A few Tolkien fans. No, Gino's back there. He got it. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to miss that chuckle right there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's go to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need that anything be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us not keep awake or let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, 
encourage one another, and build one another up just as you also are doing. Listen, whether it's the day you die or the day Christ returns, none of us know when those things are coming. You don't know when your day is called. Again, I was on the phone this week with someone in our church whose 38-year-old sister, they didn't know it was coming. You don't know whether it is your passing or the Lord's returning, we don't know. That's why he's saying it's coming like a thief in the night. Jesus himself said, no man knows the day or the hour. How many times have you seen in history somebody predict it wrong? A lot. You remember Y2K? You remember 2012 in the Mayan calendar? That's just two. There's a lot. There's books out there. People selling books. Famous speakers who are saying, oh, I missed it that time. I did the math wrong. (laughs) It's this day. No, you're an idiot. The God-man Jesus said, no man knows. You will not figure it out. And if somebody comes to you saying, here's the formula, it's coming on this day, you can go, it ain't that day. Because no man knows. No one knows. And again, what is the truth we need to take away from this? The truth is you don't know when your time is out. And in Hebrews it says, it is appointed for each man a day to die. And then judgment We know Jesus is coming back. And if he continues to tarry, we know we will all die. There's no one here sitting here thinking, oh, maybe I won't. You're going to die. The question is when. And the question beyond that, for when, is will you be ready? And if the question is, we don't know when, and will I be ready, Don't we want to be ready today? Don't we want to be ready now? I don't have to ask if any of you have experienced the pain of someone you felt left too early. If you've lived very long at all, you felt that. A car crash, an accident, unexpected health thing came up. All of us have felt that you don't know. Get ready today. You don't know that. You don't know when it's happening. But here's what we do know. We're not promised tomorrow, but we do have today. We are not promised tomorrow, but you do have today. So you need to ask yourself, what do I want to do today? First and foremost, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't have the confidence that you have faith in Christ, the first step is to have that today. To repent of sin and confess faith in the Lord Jesus. Confess him as Lord of your life. Turn away from the ways of the world and ask the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit and transform you and change you. That's step one. Don't take the conversation anywhere else if you don't have that. Because what you know you have is right now. Beyond that, we need to ask ourselves, what do I want to do today for the Lord? Not someday, not if things line up, not if I finally feel equipped or ready or if all the stars align, what have you. 
No, what are you going to do today for the Lord? Because that's all you got. Tomorrow will be today if you get tomorrow. You're not promised it. My hope and prayer is that all of you have tomorrow. But we don't know. How am I living for him today? Today. Let's live every day in light of that day. So how do we respond? What's the point of being mindful of the fact that he is coming back and we don't know when? Because here's the deal. I believe there's a lot of things happening in the world that go, wow, it could be any minute. And that's true, but I also want to remind you that people have felt that way for 2,000 years. And so we need to learn to live in the balance of being ready today as if it was today and having our hands to the plow as if it's not today. Okay? We want to have our eyes on the skies and our hands on the plow. Meaning every single day, Lord, if you're coming today, I want to live today as if it's the last day. And I want to live as if you're not coming back for a while, which is why Paul told the Thessalonians, hey, get a job. Stop mooching off of other Christians. That's my Stephen paraphrase translation of one of the things he says in both of his letters. Is hey, he's coming back, but he's coming back like a thief in the night. None of us know the day nor the hour, so get busy. Don't sit there in the park singing kumbaya going, we're ready. Be ready, stay ready, stay faithful, stay in right relationship by faith in Jesus Christ. Keep sin out of your life, reject it, abstain from it, live holy as if it could be today, as if you could stand face to face before the holy judge of all creation today. But also being mindful, he might give me 10 more years, 20, 30, 40, however many more years he might give. And therefore, I want to be diligent. I want to be intentional. I want to be giving my life to bring other people into his kingdom. Amen? Keep your eyes on the skies. Meaning let's live longing for that day, ready for that day. But keep your hands on the plow. We have work to do. We have fields to harvest. There are people who don't know him. There are people who will not be ready when he comes. That's why we've got to put our hands to the plow and not live our lives for ourselves, not make our schedules arranged around just what we like and want, but prioritize our lives around the fact that he's coming back. Amen? Eyes on the skies and hands on the plow. We live of lives of holiness. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope because we have eternal hope in Christ. And as Paul noticed in the Thessalonians and he encouraged them more and more to do, we love each other hard. We love each other hard. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I ask today that if there's anyone who's hearing me that has wrestled with fear and doubt around this concept and these questions of what happens to us when we die. Lord, I ask today and hope from your word that they have seen the truth, that you're coming back. Lord, I ask if there's anyone who doesn't know you, 
who's not in right relationship with you. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit today that you would bring them to faith, that you would help them see the truth and believe it and respond by repenting of their sin, placing all of their faith and hope in Jesus Christ and being baptized. God, I ask that for those of us who do know you, that you would help us live faithful before you, that we would look different than the world by the Holy Spirit within us, empowering us to live a life that pleases you and honors you. That when we wrestle with being liked and accepted by the world or being approved and pleased of by God, that we would choose you. That we would aim not to please man, but to please Christ. And that, Lord, you would help us put our hands to the plow, show all of us the part that we play in reaching more and more people with the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us live today for that day, every day for that day when we will stand before you and hopefully by the grace of God, hear well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.